0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're beginning a series called God's Providence. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, What We Mean by Providence.
1: If you're a Christian, I- I'm sure you've said it. God is in control. That's, that's what we say. The world may seem out of control, but it's not. God is in control. Now, have you ever wondered what it is that you mean when you say that? How much is he in control? Does he simply control the big things or does he control all things? Which is it? Let me give an illustration. You invite some friends over to your house. It's a, it's a festive get-together. Just you and a dozen others, let's say, to have a barbecue, share some dessert, talk about joyful things, and celebrate friendship. Now, before the evening is done, you've prepared some some fun games. Let's say you play charades, and and just for even more enjoyment, you pit the men against the women, or the over-40s against the under-40s, or however you arrange things, just to heighten the joy and the laughter. And when the charades begin, you meet with your team, and someone says, we're going to win. And if someone in your group says, well, God's in control of that, He alone will determine who wins tonight, and and then immediately a conversation starts. Well, God is in control of the big things, but surely in His grand sovereign design of the universe, He doesn't control the charades in your house on one evening, or does He? You know, that stuff is just random, or is it? And that, yes, that is exactly what we're talking about. When we say God is in control, what is it exactly that we mean? Now, for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to talk about. No, not not charades, but God's control. If you lose your job, is God in control of that? How about if you lose your car keys or your credit card or your favorite ball cap when you're out in a restaurant? Indeed, if you think that's all we're going to talk about, well, there is so much more. Is God in control when wars break out? Is God in control when an unethical employee steals your company's much needed funds? Is God in control when your cat eats your canary? Is God in control when you make free moral choices? Well, if God controls free will, do we even have free will? Who's in control of our free will? Is it God or is it us? What about the speed of the earth's orbit around the sun, or for that matter, the motion of all the orbs in the galaxy? Well, If He controls the galaxy, does He also control where and how the spider in your backyard spins its web? And does He control the fly that gets caught in the web? Does God order the mountain goats to give birth? That is, do they propagate at His command, or is it just nature that He created, now working independently of Him? Do the molecules, each one, operate at His specific directions? And if so, did your wife or husband make that lasagna for supper at his command? How about the ingredients they used, the the temperature of the oven and the plate that fell on the floor and broke? Did it break into just the amount of pieces that he determined in advance? I hope you see what I'm getting at because the answer to these questions are both fascinating and might just change your view of everything. In fact, I'm hoping that by the time I'm done, and we've examined a multitude of biblical passages, you might just come to the conclusion that we should never use the word luck again. Ah, but I fear I've gotten too far ahead of myself. For the next three weeks, we're going to do a topical Bible study on the subject of the providence of God. And when I talk about God's providence, I'm talking about God's control over all things. I mean to say our study in the next three weeks is about God's continual, moment-by-moment involvement in all things. I mean that God keeps all things existing at each moment. I mean that God constantly maintains and watches over everything He's made. I mean that God continually directs His creation, causing each thing that He has made to act in the way that it does. I mean that God is fulfilling His purpose in the creation just the way He does down to each little detail. But I would be amiss at this point to say too much. What I mean is that I would be amiss if I shared my conclusions based on what I think about this matter. See, we all have thoughts about these matters, but that's not what this study is about. This study is about examining what the Bible has to say about these questions. But where to start? Well, let's start with a very short phrase. It's found in Hebrews 1 verse 3. The passage is speaking about Jesus and why it is that we must never think about Jesus as just a great prophet or a great teacher or even a great miracle worker. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that's the phrase. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus upholds the universe. In the first part of verse 3, we learn to identify the sun. He's not the reflection of God. No, no. He is the actual radiance of God. If we were to understand that phrase, think of the difference between the moon and the sun. The moon is a reflection of light, but the sun is the actual radiance itself. And so, says the writer of Hebrews, when we think about Jesus, he's not the reflection of the glory of God. He's the actual radiance, the very source of that glory itself. And then after declaring his identity, the writer of Hebrews tells us what the sun is doing. He's upholding the universe. You know, another translation translates it as he's sustaining the universe, or he is at each moment caring for the universe. But how is he doing that? You know, the meaning behind the word is that the Son is constantly caring for all aspects of the universe and ensuring that at each moment, all things in the universe are accomplishing the purpose for which he has made them says the writer of Hebrews. He does that by his powerful word. That means that Christ, the ruler of the universe, simply utters a word, and when he does, the universe always obeys his commands. Well, think about it in terms of Matthew chapter 14. Now, in that chapter, verse 13 to 21 says that Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and started breaking them, and then in his hands, he simply multiplied the molecular structure of both bread and fish so that there was enough bread and fish for 5,000 people. And then in verses 22 to 33 of that same chapter in Matthew, Jesus walks on water. Now, how is it possible to do that? Well, I think he's changing, I would imagine, the composition of the water below his feet in order to allow him to walk on it and not sink as bodies would normally do. He does that because he controls how the molecules that make up the water actually act and how they react. And that would mean that at each moment, the way that the structure of created things functions is at all times subject to his will. Jesus, says the writer of Hebrews, directs the physical universe to act as it does. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews wants us to think when he says that Jesus upholds the universe. The reason the earth continues to remain on its axis around the sun, rotating at the speed that it does, is because that's how Christ, at each moment, dictates that it should act. You know, I'll say more about that as we go on in this series, but from this one statement in Hebrews 1, verse 3, I want us to consider the words of Psalm 103. The psalm is a psalm of worship, a psalm teaching God's people to praise God, and verse 1 begins with very familiar words. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. And then in verses 3 to 5, David gives reasons to bless God. He says, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies your life with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. I know many of us are familiar with those words. No doubt we've repeated them. We're struck by the poetic nature of those words, and we've reveled in repeating them to ourselves. But have you thought about it? God controls whether or not you're forgiven. God controls whether or not you recover from your illness or succumb to it. God controls whether or not you're able to get out of that tight spot that might overcome you. God controls whether your life is satisfying or bitter. God even controls as you get older, whether you're blessed with vigor well into old age or it's lacking. Jesus says that God controls whether each hair will turn gray. I mean, these things seem to speak to me of what? The specific details, the big things and the little things. So let me get back to that game of charades in your house, that celebration of friendship, the laughter, the joy. And someone on your side, as you divide into teams says, I think that God will determine who wins tonight. So is he right? So I want you to consider a little verse that you might never have considered. It's found in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. It simply says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord.
0: You know, there's certain sensitive topics some of us tend to avoid discussing, even with our loved ones. Money is definitely one of those. But since the Bible certainly does not shy away from discussing the matter of money, then neither should we. That's why we're so excited to share with you our newest resource called 10 Questions About Money Matters. It's a short booklet based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money and it will help you address financial issues from a biblical perspective. We're confident this resource will provide financial guidance, helping us to become better stewards of the resources that God has graced us with. We're thrilled to offer you this booklet for free for the whole month of August. To request your copy or to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: So the first thing that happens in your night of charades is that somebody flips a coin to determine which side goes first. And as that coin is in the air, the way it behaves, that decision, says Solomon in Proverbs, is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And that's what we mean by providence. God doesn't just occasionally intervene. He always intervenes. There never was a moment in your life when God was not intervening. And that's the difference between talking about providence as opposed to talking about a miracle. It's not that God only intervenes in this world when there's a miracle. You know, some of you might have read C.S. Lewis' book on miracles. Now, just to set the record straight, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. But on this subject of miracles, I think Dr. Lewis got it wrong. When explaining a miracle, Lewis gives an illustration. Imagine a pool table that is perfectly level and has a predictable surface and excellent cushions and so forth. And when you bank the ball into the side pocket, the rules of physics tell you that if you do it right, it will always go in. But what if while making that shot, someone reaches down onto the table and catches the ball? Now, it didn't go into the side pocket because someone from the outside has reached his hand onto the table. And That, argues Lewis, is exactly what a miracle is. God is supernatural and not a part of this creation. He is the creator. And when a miracle occurs, God interrupts the regular course of nature by reaching his hand into the creation. That sounds like an attractive definition of a miracle. I mean, when I was a young Christian, I mean, that viewpoint attracted me. But as I matured and studied my Bible, I began to doubt that this really was the biblical definition of a miracle at all. It was Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 that really caused me to question C.S. Lewis' definition. I became fascinated with the idea that at each moment, God was sustaining the universe so that God's hand was constantly reaching into the universe. Consider Colossians 1, 15-16. It says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's a mouthful. But I would want to concentrate on the very next verse, verse 17. It says, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Again, just like in Hebrews, Colossians tells us that at each moment, Jesus, the great uncreated creator, is holding all things in the universe together. Let's get back to our discussion of miracles. So what's a miracle? Well, yes, I I must agree with Dr. Lewis that God does indeed intervene when a miracle occurs. Consider, for example, Luke 7, 11 to 17. Let me read it. Soon after he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise." And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, "'A great prophet has arisen among us, "'and God has visited his people.' And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country." So here's what should have happened. When this young man died, his heart stopped beating and his blood pooled. Then his body changed color, it turned pale, and his body turned cold. And with that, the body begins to break down. His proteins start to decompose. There was a breakdown of his cell walls and a loss of cohesion between tissues. And it resulted in the liquefaction of all of his internal organs. His body was now on course to decompose. But Jesus stepped in and commanded this decomposing process to cease, and at His word, the decomposition immediately reversed itself, the heart began to beat, and the blood rushed life to organs that were immediately repaired. Was that God, as it were, reaching His hand onto the pool table and interrupting the natural course of nature? Well, what if what we call the normal course of nature to be no more than the way in which Jesus, the great creator, directs the course of all things at each moment. So here's how I define a miracle. Yes, of course, God intervenes when we experience a miracle, and miracles really do cause us to sit up and take notice. But that's because the way in which God intervenes is extraordinary. That's to say, We have noticed that when a miracle occurs, God acts or intervenes in a way that's different from the way in which he normally intervenes. But hear me, if you had eyes to see it, you would come to the conclusion that his hand was never far off. Indeed, his hand is always present. I mean, that's why in Acts 17, verse 8, Paul would say, in him we live and move and have our being. God is always acting. He's always intervening. He's always sustaining all things. And God does so in remarkably predictable ways. That's because God is consistent. And because he's consistent, science is possible. We can study the way in which God predictably governs all of nature. But when a miracle occurs, God acts outside of his predictable norm. That's all. He's still governing all things as usual, and yet a miracle is outside of his normal ways of intervening. But whether it's a miracle or whether it's his normal way of acting, God is always active. He's always sustaining the universe at each moment. The universe doesn't run by itself. And that's what we mean when we talk about God's providence. God is continually, at each moment, involved in every aspect of all created things. You know, for one, God keeps the universe existing. I mean, if He didn't, it would cease to exist. And God directs all properties in the universe to act precisely in the way that they act. And finally, all things in the functioning of the universe fulfill His purposes, for the earth is the Lord's, and He created it for His glory. And, and that's providence— God governs all things. When I talk in this way, that's exactly how the Bible describes it. And let me say that this overturns a view of the world that has been called the worldview of deism. Now, if you've never heard that term, deism is a view that was quite popular in both the 1600s and the 1700s. The ancient deists taught that God was much like a watchmaker. See, a watchmaker creates a watch, then he winds it up, and then he lets it wind down without intervening. It acts on its own. See, the old deists believed in a creator. They believed that the universe reflected the glory of the creator, but they denied that the creator was actively involved. The deists believed that God created the laws of physics and the incredible complexity of all things, but but once he created it, God removed his presence. The deists thought that it would be a sign of imperfection if God had to constantly monkey with or be involved in the creation. And so the deists, while they believed in God, refused to believe that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for our sins or, or that Jesus did miracles or that miracles could be done today. For them, the things that happen on this earth are simply the outworking of the laws of nature that God had made. For them, God was not sustaining the universe at each moment. Indeed, the laws God had made, the the laws of science, were sustaining the universe at each moment. See, here's a sad truth. A great many Christians today are practical deists. I mean by that, that theologically, they do believe that God controls all things, but practically, they don't live in that reality when unexpected things happen, when bad things happen, like a loss of health or a job or a breakdown of relationships, or when an earthquake or a volcano erupts, they think of it in terms of chance or luck. That's just how broken and fallen the universe is, they say, and we have the misfortune of being caught up in the outworking of nature. See, how sad. Many of us have never been taught either the doctrine of God's providence or how once knowing God's providence, how to translate that into moment-by-moment trust in God who directs all things according to His glory and for our long-term good. See, don't you see? We have so much to talk about. But once we grasp the doctrine of providence, we're never going to be the same. We're always going to think that God is close at hand never far away. This will change your life.
0: John, I think it'd be true to say that many people believe, many Christian people believe that, you know, God is in control of all things at all times, but it's another thing to live that way. Yeah, I think
1: we haven't yet been trained or let's say we haven't been discipled to know how to deal with the everyday events of life and see the hand of God never far from us, in fact, deeply involved in our lives. So, uh, you know, I think it's 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 groundbreaking for individuals to finally recognize that, you know, we live within the control of God at each and every moment and then to be, begin to interact with our world uh, in a way in which we're interacting with God. You know, the, the day starts and you know, whatever weather it is, God, you've brought me this today. And whatever interactions I have, they were all guided by the providential hand of God in everything. That's That's the key to discipleship.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. want access to all your favourite Back to the Bible content right at your fingertips, then be sure to check out our free app. There you can listen to your favourite audio messages, read the Dr. John and Company blog, watch video sermons from Dr. John and even access a digital Bible. Perfect for on the go. We strive to make Bible teaching and engagement resources as easily accessible as possible to as many people in as many ways, both nationally and internationally. To download the Back to the Bible Canada app at absolutely no cost to you, simply visit your app store and search Back to the Bible Canada. And for more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And on behalf of the whole ministry team, thank you. It's your support that allows us to make Bible teaching resources such as these possible.